Good evening. So who has all their Christmas shopping already done? Anybody here? Nobody. Wow. One? What's it like? <laughs> What's it like to be done, I don't know, more than 25 days in advance? Uh, I've never known that feeling. Uh, and usually every time I think we're done, we remember something else. And we think that we're done then, and we remember one other thing. And we think we're done then, and we remember one. Even though we try, sometimes we'll try in like July. Hey, let's get a, we do, and some of you I'm sure do too. Hey, we got these four things. Let's get, hide them from ourselves where we can't even find them anymore. Where did we hide them? That kind of thing. So that time of year. But good to see, good to see all of you tonight. Um, as Pastor Trevor mentioned, looking forward to having uh, Matt Wilder here on Sunday. As I mentioned, um, concert pianist, uh, memorize large volumes of the New Testament. And uh, you're going to be really blessed. Um, it's going to be a real... Uh, a good opportunity to invite someone that perhaps wouldn't come, but you know, double up with the fact that it's December and uh, special music for uh, about an hour, um, and uh, it's a good, good opportunity to uh, invite people out. So uh, I love when I roll up here tonight and the lights are around the building, that looks nice too. Uh, we've got some other, even when these lights go away, we're going to finally get lighting on the building, so we're, we're, we got really tired of it being so dark when you ride by this building at night, so... We're finally going to get that done. It's going to take some work. We're going to get the electrical panel upgraded so we can handle these things. But uh, continue to pray. We've got, we thought our projects were on, <laughs> on schedule. And then Lowe's told us, it's not going to be this week either. <laughs> I said on Sunday, it's going to be next week. I'm like, do we get like any money back? But it doesn't work that way. They're like, no, it doesn't, you know, you'll get it when you get it kind of thing. So must be nice to be a big Fortune 500 company. You kind of do whatever you want, you know, so... Uh, but the, at least the, the, the folks over there have been really, they've been good. They've been doing their best to try, and I think next week we get the other things brought out here. But uh, turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Joel chapter 3, and if you're watching online, welcome to you as well. Uh, we are continuing and, and coming to the home stretch of our study in the book of Joel. We only have today and next Wednesday, and then we'll finish this small book. Um, you know, the Lord put on my heart back in the summer. I never knew how timely this book would be. I knew it would be timely, but it's even been more timely than I uh, could have anticipated because back in the summer I had no idea of October 7th and what would take place there. And, and I think when you look at what we'll look at tonight, uh, you'll hopefully see um, even more of God bringing all the pieces together uh, in our lifetime. And Israel, you know... Uh, Phil just led us in a song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and it says, it, it talks about Israel in the song, uh, release, uh, release captive Israel, and so uh, you can't get away from Israel in the Bible and God's plan and purposes for uh, the nation and the people, and so we're going to look at that uh, in detail tonight. Uh, we're going to re just read verses 1 through 11, and then next week we'll pick it up and uh, finish the chapter 12 through 21. Uh, just too much to cover in, in one night. So let's start with verse 1. Uh, if you have a pen, and you haven't done this in your Bible, uh, I'll draw your attention to uh, ver uh, verse 2 and 3, and I'll accentuate where you might want to underline, because it's pretty significant, um, just to note what God says here. This is the Lord speaking in quotations, as you can see. For behold, 
in those days and at that time, when I bring back, it's not going to be the work of the United Nations or man, but when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. You might want to underline that. God says, on account of my people. You say, well, which people? Well, God answers it in the next three words. My heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. So you've got my people, my heritage, Israel, my land. Then verse 3, they have cast lots for my people. Just to stop right there for a second. You don't really want to mess with things that belong to God. It's quite possessive here. They have cast lots for my people and have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. That's how worthless they would consider God's people. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coast of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return retaliation upon your own head. Because you have taken my gold and or my silver and my gold and carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong, assemble and gather all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let's stop right there. And again, there's more to cover uh, that we'll cover next week and the remainder of the chapter. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you uh, just for the time we've already had to worship you in song, to remember you are our mighty God and mighty Savior. You are Emmanuel. You didn't just come to ransom Israel, but all the nations of the world and all the peoples of the world, if we would humble ourselves. Lord, we pray that we've come here tonight uh, with humble hearts, listening ears, uh, Lord, a desire to draw near to you, a desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus, a desire to love you, to love one another, and to love your people as you've called us to do. Lord, we pray that you would speak mightily through your word. I pray that you would give me your help, your strength, your anointing. As I say often, Lord, I could never do this without your help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to read the Scriptures and come to the conclusion that Israel, Jerusalem, and the Jewish people, which are the Hebrew descendants of Abraham, as both a people and as a nation, are central to so much of the Bible and very central to end times prophecy. Have any of you come to this conclusion? I hope you have. This has, of course, been prevalent through the entire book of Joel 
And it continues here in chapter 3. And I would say even uh, kind of ramps up a little bit, if you will. And as I've mentioned in numerous prior teachings, not just in the book of Joel, but many teachings over the years, when looking at the prophecies that are found throughout the scriptures, examining the lengthy prophecy given by Jesus in his Olivet Discourse, for example, or studying the prophetic writings that the Lord gave to John in the book of Revelation, another example. The prophetic scriptures, including those left to be fulfilled in the last days, are not always written, and you've probably noticed this if you've read through the Bible, especially prophetic readings, they're not always given or written in exact chronological order. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, many times they are, but not always. Mostly, they're listed in chronological order, for the most part. But you'll have these interludes where God can, through the prophets that he gave the scriptures to, he'll go back in time, he'll overlap time, or even time periods, or sometimes the Lord will pull back up to a broader view of kind of a large span of time, even all time. But all these things, all these things are written to reveal the unfolding plan of God and that we, in response to the unfolding plan of God, would draw nearer to the Lord. Especially as you see the day approaching. The question is not Will the prophecies of Scripture come to pass? They will come to pass. That's not the question. Whether they be related to Israel, whether they be related to us, the church, which includes Jewish people of Israel and outside the nation of Israel, or related to the whole world itself, because there's prophecies for the world. But the question for each individual soul is, Will you be with the Lord and thereby on his side? Or will you be opposed to the Lord and thereby facing his judgment? Which he spells out, not in specific detail here, but loud and clear. As we get closer and closer to the end of the age, and each of us are getting closer and closer to the end of our days, amen? Every day, your body reminds you you're getting older, not younger. (laughs) But we have less time to decide. Not just to come to the Lord, but to love the Lord and to live for the Lord. That's that's my decision now. I've already come to the Lord. How about you? Now it's like, Lord, am I going to love you and live for you? The time to decide is less and less. And I would assume most of you here tonight... If not all of you, most, many of Wednesdays, I know every person here. Sundays, I often don't know some of the people here. But many of Wednesdays, I know almost everybody. But most of you, if not all of you, have probably already decided to come to Jesus. Maybe someone watching online has not. Maybe someone here. But again, we have less and less time to make that decision. We certainly have less and less time to live for him. We have less time than we had yesterday. Right? We have less time than we had yesterday to be used by him to 
help others to see that the very events that are happening all around us were foretold in this book. Matter of fact, my wife and I, in the conversation we had on Thanksgiving Day, that went two and a half hours, was directly because someone there had a question about Israel and what was going on was really confusing to them. They didn't know that I was a pastor. <laughs> and they didn't know I have studied a lot of this. And that's why it went two and a half hours. I didn't, they were asking question after question. It was like a really good opportunity. But if you're taking notes this evening, you see the title, The Return of Israel and Preparation of the Nations. The Return of Israel and Preparation of of the nations. We left off the week before Thanksgiving, finishing chapter 2, and uh, let's look back for just, uh, just a moment briefly at the end of chapter 2, uh, verses 28 through 32, and just looking briefly back at the end of chapter 2 for just a moment, it underscores what I mentioned at the outset, that the prophetic scriptures are primarily but not exclusively chronological. So look back at verses 28 through 32 for just a second of chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Also on my mate and also on my maid ser- men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And we know Peter stood up. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. He preached these very words. Going on to verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever, even if you have been revolting against God forever, the day you call upon him, if you're still alive, you would be saved or could be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant the Lord calls. So I wanted to go back two weeks for just a second there. And so we look again. The Lord addresses time. You know, we, we look at time on a clock. All, all we can look at is the present. And actually every second we look at it, it's already passed, right? So you don't even get the present in a sense. But we look at time. But the Lord looks at time, he looks at past, he looks at present, he looks at future, and he's in all of time. He's in the past, he's in the present, he's in the future. He's looking at all time, at all times. But in the scriptures, he will present it in various ways, and most certainly, many of the ways that God presents his view of time are outside of the typical way we think. His ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Yet, all that said, because prophecy can be a little bit confusing if you, you know, when you first out, start out with it, yet with diligent study, and everybody can put in diligent study, it's a choice, with diligent study, and the blessing that we have to compare, this is how you study scripture, you compare scripture to the rest of scriptures. The scriptures interpret the scriptures. You never take a verse on an island just live there, you actually take verses and say, how does, this, how does this interconnect to the rest of the scriptures? But we can use the scriptures to compare the rest of the scriptures, and that helps us interpret what the Lord is saying. And we can, capital C-A-N, we can understand rather clearly, I would say, 
The most important, not every hidden detail, some details we won't know till heaven, amen? But we would understand the most important things that God is revealing. Do you, do you agree with that? He'll, he'll, he'll reveal the most important things. Like, you don't have to wonder, uh, who is he talking about? It says, my people, my heritage, Israel. That We can understand that. He doesn't say the United States. Not even Texans, you know, as big as they are. You know, but my people, my heritage, Israel. He's written these things to be understood. Not to be confused, but to be understood for our good. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says, um, oh, I didn't put it up there, so I have to read it. Uh, they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. The scriptures were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages. And as, as we get closer to the end of the age, it shows you we need even more the scriptures to be our light, to be our admonition, to be our counsel, to be our glasses, if you will, eyeglasses, if you will, as we get closer and closer to the end. But back quickly to uh, verses 28 and 32. I'm not going to reread them. We just read them. But as, I, as you looked at verses 28 through 32, and you can reread them later, but um, they're like a 50, those, those verses, the end of chapter 2, they're like a 50,000 foot Google Earth view of from Pentecost all the way to the day of the Lord, right? I mean, if you're at Pentecost, you can only see Pentecost. You kind of raise up like you can see things, time like God, and all of a sudden you see from Pentecost all the way to the day of the Lord, which we can't really see that, but God writes about it or tells us about it because he's already been there. So you have this 50,000-foot view from Pentecost to the day of the Lord, and we wouldn't know that it includes Pentecost until Peter stands up and preaches from this point. And that's how we know that this was fulfilled, although it had partial fulfillment even before then. It will have final fulfillment when we worship the Lord in the millennium reign of Christ. You can even say it goes further than even the day of the Lord. It goes to all the way to even the day of Christ's uh, reign, his second coming. And remember in the, in the ending verse, in verse 32 of chapter uh, 2 there, it talks about, and the Lord, uh, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now, the remnant has been visible throughout Israel's A remnant came back from the, uh, from the Babylonian uh, captivity. The, the apostles themselves were a remnant. Uh, the little group of uh, Christians who were scattered under the time of the early church persecution, they were a remnant, were a remnant numerically compared to the broad road to destruction. But he's also speaking there more specifically about the remnant of Israel and believers that will come out of the tribulation period. That remnant is even more in view, although all the other remnants of which we're part of that remnant is also in view. Does that make sense? So God, again, speaks to a point in time, but is also speaking to a much wider view of time at the same time. So hopefully... All of that makes sense. You might think, well, if verse 32 of chapter 2 took us all the way to the day of the Lord and to the end of the tribulation, that should be the end of the book of Joel, right? That should be it. Nope, the Lord has more to say. 
And he has more to say about what is coming, why it's coming, and the role and impact that Israel will play that's inclusive of the very last days of, of the end of chapter 2, but also as he comes back and speaks again in chapter 3, the Lord, if you will, takes a few steps backwards in time to lay out the progression. Does that make sense? And Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, does the same thing. He would be talking about pre-seven-year tribulation. Then he's talking about in the tribulation, tribulation. Then he goes back to, before the tribulation again, two people walking side by side. One will be taken, one will be left. So he doesn't stay chronological the entire time, nor does the book of Joel. Now, back to verse 1 here. For behold, in chapter 3, for behold, in those days... And at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, in those days, those days, and he says that, and at that time. Now, this includes those days and at that time, definitely will include the Great Tribulation, which is still yet to come. Seven-year tribulation, that will include that time. Especially, I would say, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, when the temple will be rebuilt, Israel will have the temple back. They don't have a temple right now. If you go to Israel, Dome of the Rock is sitting there right now. Actually, two mosques on the Temple Mount. But especially during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, when it's likely that many, we don't, it could be all, could be all Jews worldwide, but, but at least many, 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 even more, that there's still many Jews that live in New York City, many Jews that live in Los Angeles, many Jews that live in Paris, there's large Jewish populations around the world that do not live in Israel, they might go, you know, again, some of them might go to certain holidays, but they still live in other parts of the world, but they're in that first three and a half years, and leading up to it, obviously not, not just in the three and a half years of the first part of the tribulation, but even leading up to it, uh, many, many Jews are likely to return to the promised land or will desire to do so finally. But I believe this is also inclusive of the prior period before the last days, before the time of Jacob's trouble, which is that seven-year period, before the tribulation period. I believe it also includes the prior period, which Jesus called the beginnings of sorrows which if you've heard me share on prophecy and many others, uh, that it would agree, and I'm not, not saying everybody agrees, but uh, I think we're in the beginnings of sorrows right now. And I think we have been for quite a while, actually, uh, at least going back to World War I, World War II, and perhaps even earlier than that. I, I, you know, there, there's lots of places you could look at and say, could, you know, and to a certain extent, We've been in the beginning of the sorrows since Pentecost, to a certain extent. So again, there, there's, the, there's the broader view, and then you get more. We talked about this before. As you get closer to the end, things narrow, right? It's just like the hourglass. Things narrow down, and we're getting closer and closer. So we're more than likely in the beginnings of sorrows right now. But he says, I'm going to bring my people back to the land, back 
if they were from Judah, if they were from Jerusalem, back to the land. Even if they've never lived there before, they're going to have a desire to go back and live in the land. But what happened in 1948, and it's up on the screen, most of you, I'd say all of you, unless you're, I don't see any kids in here, they wouldn't know, but necessarily, some of your kids are smart, they would know. But anyway, most of you are well aware that Israel became a nation, re-became a nation, in 1948. It was beyond remarkable. We don't even understand. I think most, even most people in the church have no idea how massive this was, how unbelievable, astounding in human history it was. Look over to verse 6 and 7. We read it, but just for a second. Uh, also, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, who you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from your borders. In other words, God is saying, there was a concerted effort for you to kick the Jewish people out of the land I gave them, that you sold them into other lands. Of course, Rome did this. Assyrians did this. Babylon did this. The Ottoman Empire did this. And he goes on to say in verse 7, Behold, I will raise them out of the places which you sold them. God says, I'm going to bring them back. You took them out. I'm bringing them back. There had not been a Jewish state for 2,000 years. You've got to go back to the Maccabean period. There had not been a Jewish state in the time when Jesus was there. There still wasn't a Jewish rule. It was under Roman rule. They had ruled the temple and things like that. But you've got to go back to the Maccabean period. So you have to go back 2,000 years. But out of the horror of the Nazi Holocaust, millions put on rail cars, sent to death camps, millions killed just because of being Jewish. They had nothing to do with anything other than they were just Jewish people trying to live a normal life somewhere in Europe, and millions were killed. And so out of the horrors of the Nazi Holocaust came the hope of a reborn nation. It took that ashes to actually talk about the phoenix out of the it's coming up out of the ashes. And in the midst of being, so Israel, even on the first day May 14, 1948, even on the first day of being a nation, they were surrounded by enemies. Not just surrounded by uh, what people didn't like, but armies that were advancing on that very day. So the armies, as soon as Israel declared and the British mandate ended, Israel becomes a state uh, or a nation. Yet armies determined to destroy this small newborn nation, but Israel stood up against all the odds. May 14, 1948. In fact, the day after Israel was born as a reborn, I would say, it's a better word, as the day after Israel was reborn as a nation, armies from surrounding countries invaded the, on the 15th, the next day, invaded on the 15th, intending to kill Israel off to kill this reborn nation before it could even get established. And the same way that Pharaoh tried to kill Moses before he could get even out of diapers, and Herod tried to kill Jesus before he could get out of Bethlehem. And so in the same way, they tried to kill the nation before Israel could even get on its feet. 
but you know it didn't work, did it? The Secretary General of the Arab League said on that same day, he said, on May the 15th, the day after Israel became a nation, Azam Pasha said in his bravado, he said, this will be a war of extermination. That's the same words Hitler used, by the way. This will be a war of extermination and a, and a momentous massacre, which will be spoken of like the Mongolian massacres and the Crusades. He wasn't hiding at all. He goes, we're going to exterminate them. In other words, we'll finish what Hitler couldn't finish. The day after they become a that's when the attacks came in. You don't hear this, by the way, in schools in America. You don't hear this on the news. Nobody knows anything about history in our country anyway. We don't even know our own history, for goodness sake. Much less would we know Israel's. Now, you can tell he had a whole lot of compassion for people who had come out of World War II and the Holocaust, right? I mean, many of them had escaped extermination, and he used the word extermination the very next day after they become a country, and they attack from all sides. But as you now know, Israel defeated those numerically superior armies. It wasn't the first. They would have two more wars after that. But they, they, they defeated all those armies around them. Israel's rebirth was a miracle. And its preservation as a people before, its preservation as a nation and a people since, remains a miracle. And millions around the world saw May 14, 1948 as the miracle it was. I mean, we had U.S. presidents that thankfully did see it as a miracle. Israel's first prime minister was David Ben-Gurion. If you fly into Israel, you fly into Ben-Gurion International Airport. But he was the first prime minister, David Ben-David Ben-Gurion, he said, in Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. We don't tell our people to believe in miracles in this country. We tell them, it's science. It's our science. I do believe in science. The people who say that do not believe in science, actually, ironically. But he said, you must believe in miracles. And now my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer, and I know many of you personally, so I know it is your prayer, but my prayer is continually that Israel would come to believe in Jesus. Yeshua, not just in miracles, but believe in the Messiah, believe in Jesus, Yeshua. Because even in his earthly ministry, some believed in his miracles, but didn't believe in him, amazingly enough. They believe, hey, I believe you can heal me. Do you want to follow me? No. And millions around the world, again, whether they be Jewish or Gentile, need to believe in him, not just in miracles. Nonetheless, Israel is a miracle. I mean, Israel as a nation is a miracle. And, and many, many unsaved historians are more aware of how miraculous it is than many even Christians are that have really studied it and kind of really say, wow, this kind of defies many different odds. And just as some marvel and rejoice uh, that Israel was not only reborn, but has since survived since 1948, 
and more than just survive, has thrived. I mean, it is the breadbasket of the Middle East. It is the producer of flowers and almonds and oranges and all these things that are going shipped all over Europe, primarily. But Israel's not just survived, it's thrived. And many, since 1948, on the other side, have hated that Israel became a nation. Loathe that Israel became a nation. God's aware of it. I think you're aware of it. If you weren't, you are now. Ever since October 7th, you're aware of it. The lights have been turned on in the room, so to speak. But many, since 1948, have hated Israel becoming a nation. Just like evil Haman in the book of Esther, Pharaoh in Egypt, Hitler in Germany, many down through history, and even, even right now, and growing right now, not just want Israel eliminated, but the Jewish people eliminated. And some are just unbelievable, saying it on social media and not a single thing's being done about it. There's all kinds of things you better not say in this country. and You will be getting a knock on the door from the FBI or somebody else. But we see this rise in anti-Semitism. Reading just this morning, did any of you get Dr. Sam's schmooze letter, his newsletter? Any of you get it? Uh, if you didn't get it, I got it. I, I, I've been getting it for years, but he just came to our house. And I was reading just this morning, um, and this is what Sam, one of, I might read the whole letter one Sunday, uh, Hanukkah's coming up on the 7th. Uh, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, so it's, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, not one of the one of the um, given feasts in the law, but Jesus recognized it because God did do some miraculous things in preserving his people during that time. That was during the Maccabean period. But Sam had this to say in his newsletter. It's up on the screen. Uh, he had more to say, but I'm just taking this one thing he said. Anti-Semitism on U.S. campuses in the streets has become so threatening to ordinary U.S. Jews that Jews cannot feel safe in the land of the free. This has not been seen in my 75 years of living. I've known Sam since, the, since about the year 2000. So I've known him for 23 years. And he says in his 75 years, he fought in the Vietnam War. He got saved in the Jesus movement. He's never seen in his entire life. He's been all over Eastern Europe. He's preached in Eastern Europe. He's preached in Moscow. He's preached all over the world. He's been imprisoned once in Israel for sharing his faith way back in the 90s. And he has never seen anti-Semitism like he's seen right now in 2023. By the way, I thought that our current political government was supposed to clean all this stuff up. But yet it's getting way worse. Unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, just kind of open. I mean, some people are saying the very same things that they were saying in Germany in 1935. Me and Sarah, we were coming back from we were coming back from uh, Florida, and we we were listening to different things, some some messages, some podcasts, and we watched this one video. It was an elderly Jewish woman here in the United States. She was interviewed back in the spring. I want to say like it was April or something like that, but back in the spring of this year, months before October seventh, which shocked the world that day, 
So she says back in the spring, we're watching the interview with her, she says back in the spring of this year, older Jewish, about the same age as Sam, probably in the 75 range, she said that she could see already her people being hated here, but she couldn't put a full finger, she just saw it, she saw it starting to spread, and she felt that soon Jewish people would be scapegoats in the United States, as in other countries, as it was in shameful times in the past. And that she felt like, as a Jewish woman that had lived seven plus decades, she felt it was going to become unsafe for Jewish people in this country, and she had begun telling young Jewish couples that she knew to move to Israel now while you can. She did not know about October 7th coming, and the fact that October 7th would reveal how many Americans actually side with evil murder and rape and torture, although they act like they don't. Um, but she was telling these young couples, don't put it off. Move there. You'll be safer there than here. Because I'll be gone, but you'll be safer there than here. You see, we know that something miraculous happened in 1948. With Israel being replanted by God. It wasn't Britain. It wasn't the United States. Israel was replanted by God in the timing of God. And yet, something is happening now. The nations are becoming restless, and they're focusing on Israel. And they don't even know why they're focusing on Israel. As I told you guys before, you know, when the pandemic started, I said on a prophecy update, uh, I did on Zoom, because everybody was in their living room watching on Zoom, and I said, believe it or not, a few years from now, all the attention will be back on Israel. It won't be on COVID or Dr. Fauci. Thank goodness. Or, uh, you know, or all the other things. Hospitals, dancing nurses, you know, all the things that were going on. Uh, people, obviously, there was many, many difficult things, and people did. I'm not making light of COVID. I'm, saying, I'm simply saying that that's everybody's, Israel's attention. So much so, Israel's attention was so much on COVID that they weren't even paying as much attention to Hamas as they should have been. I said, eventually, all that attention will come back to Israel. Why? Because the Bible says it will. Now, just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 32, Olive Discourse, he said, we've talked about it many times, to watch the fig tree. The fig tree is a picture of Israel, so is the olive tree. Because Israel is central to the unfolding of the very end, and we get close to the end, Israel will be center stage. Not always the center stage they want to be on because it's not going to be an easy center stage to be at. But once the fig tree was planted, here's the thing we need to understand, and Israel's enemies don't understand this, but they will come to understand it. Once God replanted the fig tree, it cannot be removed. Isn't that great to know? Just like you can't lose your salvation, Satan can't take your salvation, no one can rip it away from you, you're held by Christ. But once the fig tree was replanted, it can't be removed. Amos chapter 9, verses 14 through 15, God speaking. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and 
inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their... God says it was his land, but he says, I will plant them in their land. In other words, God is sharing his land with them. And no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them. I'm not, I've said this before. I am not Jewish. I'm Gentile. I'm not jealous of Israel. God can do whatever he wants to do. I'm not jealous that he made Billy Graham an international evangelist. I don't care. God can do it every once with what it all belongs to him. So if he wants to give this person 13 years to live and this one 99 years to live, that's up to him, isn't it? The, law, the land belongs to him, but he said, I'm going to give it to them. But once I put them back in the land, they can't be uprooted. They won't be removed from the land. We have to understand that God is sovereign. In Ezekiel chapter 37, everyone here probably is familiar with the dry bones that Ezekiel encounters, where he sees these dry bones and they're completely dead and just a pile of them, probably much like what you would see coming out of the Holocaust when there was just piles of skeletons. He says, thus says the Lord, behold, O my people. Again, he says, my people, just as we saw uh, in Joel 3 here, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. In other words, not only people, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to breathe life into a nation, back into your land. And that did take place in 1948. As he says in Amos, God himself will plant his people. As he says here in Ezekiel, oh my people, he'll take from being a dead nation to being a living, living nation brought back into the land. And much more alive than, you know, again, uh, the nations around uh, Israel. Although Israel has been, uh, when we were there last time, Israel was trying to help Jordan learn how to irrigate their land better. Because they've mastered it. I mean, they, 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 they take desert, and all of a sudden it looks lush. Uh, and we've learned, even around the world, people have learned from how Israel does what they do. And they even have less water resources, uh, way less water resources than like we have in the United States. But they've done an incredible job because God's given them the understanding of that. But uh, as the Lord states um, in verse 1 and, and in verse 3 uh, in, in Joel chapter Three here, he's going to bring them back as the nations have cast lots for his people. And so many times in history, the nations have dispersed Israel to different countries, moved them out, kicked them out. Um, you know, you, you probably all heard of the Spanish Inquisition that took place in the Iberian Peninsula there in, in Spain. And when that took place, Many Jewish people were expelled from Spain. And that, when I first, when Sarah and I were in college, we were living in Miami, I had never met Cuban Jewish people until I lived there. And I did an entire, I remember it was around Hanukkah season, we did this, I was bartending and catering my way through college. We hadn't come to know the Lord yet, but we were, you know, the, the, the whole, uh, this really nice uh, high rise on, on, the, on Miami Beach on the ocean and Everybody there, uh, men with yarmulkes and everybody speaking Spanish, and yet because they were direct descendants of people who had been expelled from Spain in the Spanish Inquisition, and they expelled many people from Spain. Our, our tour guide, 
Uh, Eli, for those of you that remember, he was Sephardic. You have uh, Ashkenazi Jewish people, which are more, more like European, Northern European. Then you have Sephardic, which are Iberian Peninsula, North Africa, uh, usually olive skin, darker. And so our, our tour guide, Eli, was Sephardic. His family was also expelled from Spain. They ended up in North Africa. And then eventually he ends back up in, uh, in Israel, where he lives today. So, um, but all throughout history, uh, there has been, Jewish people have been moved from place to place to place, and God says, but they're going to find one home in the land. And the precise reason that Israel and the Jewish people have been opposed, the precise reason they've been scattered, persecuted, mistreated down through the ages, is that whether conscious of it or unaware of it, people see God's hand upon the Jewish people. Whether conscious of it or unconscious, they see the hand of God, and all you have to do is read the Bible, but it's impossible to miss the hand of God. If you read the Bible, it's pretty clear. Starting from Abraham, you're like, all right, this is, this is a cut-dry case. Case closed. God has chosen this people for his purposes, not that they're more important than if you're from Africa or from South America or from Asia. He just has a plan and a purpose for it. My wife is not more important to me that she's a woman and I'm a man. God has two purposes for us. Then he has a combined purpose for us, right? And we have a combined purpose with Israel and the church. But, but as a role, it's as clear as can be in the scripture, it's impossible to miss the hand of God upon them. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks back um, Mark Twain, when he traveled through Israel, remember he said it was just barren, wasteland, it looked like anything would grow whatsoever. But he, Mark Twain lived from 1835 to 1910. 1835 to 1910. So he lived well before, Mark Twain lived long before Israel or the Jewish people, because Israel wasn't around. He lived well before the Jewish people endured the Holocaust and well before the miracle of Israel being born in 1948, because he died in 1910. But he observed the following. I have it on the screen. Uh, best wishes to you if you're trying to take a picture of it to get it uh, from that distance. But uh, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll read it to you. He said this, um, and again, well before, well before uh, the Jewish people endured the Holocaust or, or became a nation again. He said, if statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contribution to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and the abstruse learning are also way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world and all the ages and had done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they also, and they are gone. And other people have sprung up and held their torch for a high time but it burned out, and they sit in the twilight now, or have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, 
and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakness of his parts, no slowness of his energies, no dullness of alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces have passed, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? They didn't even become a nation again. And he was perplexed at how they thrive in every nation where Mark Twain traveled. He marveled. People debated about, was Mark Twain an atheist, agnostic? Was he, it, it was all, it's all over the map. Was he somewhat Christian? His parents were, pure, uh, were, were reformed theology, but he's right. It, what, he's, what he's really was the hand of God, right? That's what he was observing. If he couldn't put his finger on it, we can, because God says, I will preserve the covenant that I made with Abraham all the way to the end. Now, we know this God, and we know this covenant with Abraham and his covenant with Israel, and his descendants must and will come to pass. Amen? It must come to pass. It will come to pass. Nobody can stop it. Hamas can't stop it. Hezbollah can't stop it. Iran can't stop it. Our own fumbling, bumbling government can't stop it. But Satan and the nations will fight against it anyway, right? Satan fights against He knows he's not going to keep me out of heaven, but he still fights against me. How about you? Fights till the bitter end. Fights against Israel. Fights against the Jewish people. Obviously fights against the church. We'll look more next Wednesday at the nations raging against God and against Israel and the day of the Lord's judgment that he is preparing to pour out. He's preparing it right now. It's already prepared in a sense, but God is preparing it. And just as he did in the days of Noah, he's going to judge the nations. There's no escape. It's either repent or be judged. There's not another option. But in the last few minutes that we have, and we don't have much time left, but in the last few minutes, let's understand what God is saying to the nations as it relates to their long and ancient and now modern history of despising Israel. Because Israel is despised right now by many people, not in this room, but by many people in this nation, by many people around the world, and certainly down through history. Not every nation at every time. Thankfully, there's been friends of Israel at different points in time. You know, the king of King Hiram gave Solomon wood for the temple. There's, a lot, there's been many times where Israel has been friendly and had good relationships, but they've been few and far between uh, when you look at the full timeline. And just as a refusing soul will be found guilty of rejecting Jesus the Messiah, so every single soul that rejects Jesus the Messiah is going to be found guilty at the great white throne judgment. Every individual still has the, the ultimate sin that you're judged for is rejecting Jesus, <clears throat> but every individual will have many other sins they'll have to be judged for, not just rejecting Jesus, that's the primary one, but they'll be judged for all, even every worthless word spoken. Likewise, nations are ultimately judged for rejecting God. Nations are judged for rejecting God outright. But their sins and their hatred toward Israel is one of the sins that God will not ignore. How do we know it? It says it right here. Go back to your Bible. On account of my people, verse 2, bottom of verse 2, just past the midpoint of the verse, on account of my people, my heritage, whom they have scattered among the nations. 
They have also divided my land. That's why I always get a little concerned when our leaders say, let's come up with a three-state, a four-state, a two-state. You know, you're, not, you're not authorized to do this. That you've not been given this response. You've not been given this authority, I should say, to divide anything. Now, Israel's offered it many times. Thankfully, Palestinians have rejected every two-state solution, three-state solution. Doesn't matter what. They've rejected it all. They want Israel eliminated from sea to the river, right? They've cast lots for my people, verse 3. They've, they've given a boy as a payment for a harlot. In other words, uh, in, in many times in history, a human being was no more valuable than a one-night stand. That's what he's saying. Well, I'll give you a Jewish boy or sold a girl for wine, for a drink at the bar. God considers every soul worth a lot more than that, right? Like Jesus shed his blood for every soul, whether you're Jew, Gentile, boy, girl. There isn't any other options, but that's where it stops. Indeed, what have you to do in verse 4 with me, O Tyre and Sidon? By the way, Tyre and Sidon is up where Hezbollah is. And all the coast of Philistia, which is where Hamas is. Interesting, huh? As we get closer to the end, that's what's mentioned there. You can say any country, but Tyre and Sidon, that's where Hezbollah is. And coast of Philistia, that's where Hamas is. Will you retaliate against me? See, when they retaliate, it's not really against Israel, because Israel still needs to turn to the Messiah. Many, most people that are Jewish in the world are still lost. They still haven't come to saving faith either. Now, I was talking to another pastor yesterday. All lost people are not the same in this, in this sense. There's many a time that I'm surrounded by lost people, and I don't feel the remotely unsafe. Every time I'm walking to Publix, I'm not like looking around like, am I going to get jumped? Right? On the other hand, there's other lost people that would kill you and me in a New York minute and not think twice about it. So they're lost. This person's lost, this person's lost, but just there's not all sins aren't equal. God, there's levels of sin. That's why some sins merit the death penalty and some do not, right? So by, God says in Romans 1, people are given over to a reprobate mind. Once you're given over to a reprobate mind, you kill with impunity, you rape, you, pill, you have no care about anything. And so that's a really dangerous person to be around. Whereas someone who says, oh, that's your crutch, lean on it, they're not dangerous to be around. They're just rejecting, but they're not dangerous to be around. Does that make sense? So, and again, our society doesn't seem to understand any, any complexity anymore. No moral compass whatsoever. I, mean, I can't remember which was A.W. Tozer or Spurgeon who said, discernment isn't knowing right from wrong, it's knowing right from almost right. We don't even know right from wrong, so no way would we know right from almost right. I don't know where, that wasn't in my notes. That was bonus material, so we've got to wrap it up here. Um, but nations are ultimately judged for rejecting God, but also they'll be judged for what they've done to Israel. And it gets closer to the end, and God's like, I've kind of let it build up. 100 years, 500 years, 2,000 years, 3,000 years, going all the way to Abraham, God says, the sin debt is getting high. And when it reaches a certain point, God's like, all the nations that have persecuted my people will all be judged. That's what he's saying. 
Swiftly and speedily I will return retaliation upon your own head. End of verse 4. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and carried into your temple and prized possessions. Just recently the Vatican kind of admitted it has some of the things stolen from the temple. Now I kind of knew this all along. I don't know about the rest of y'all. But recently there's been some admission that we might have a few of those things. They don't belong to you. Verse 6, of the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, you sold to the Greeks, you've removed them far from your borders. And Hitler actually removed people from their entire communities, right into obviously death camps, but this has been happening by other, other empires, other nations. Behold, I will raise them out of the place which you sold them. I'll return your retaliation upon your own head. Verse 8 is kind of an interesting verse. I, I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. They will sell them to the Sabians. This could... Uh, take place in Ezekiel chapter 38 uh, when Israel defeats all their enemies. It's, it's possible that Israel, if they have captives, that, you know, if there is a country right now that actually takes a lot of servants, and Zach, you probably know, Saudi Arabia has a lot of uh, people that basically work for basically slave labor, and that's where the Sabians are at. So it's possible Israel says, hey, they're a danger to us. Saudi Arabia could bench, say, we'll take them. And they will build high rises for us, and you know that's going to be their life. You know, whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter if you agree with it. God's saying that's going to happen. So that's at some point. And now some of this may have already, but again, I don't think so because most of this is to come. It's it's in the future here. Verse nine: Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all them of war draw near. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say. I am strong. This is um, something we probably will see in our lifetime. We're already starting to see it. But um, in, in essence, nations will actually turn to building war machines more than even an economy. When you take plowshares and make them into swords, and you make pruning hooks into spears, it's basically saying we're going to move away from making consumer products to war products. Russia's already doing this. North Korea only does this. Hard to believe that little North Korea has the third largest army in the world. Tiny little North Korea has two million men ready to fight. We don't. That's about the same size as our army, by the way. So they are, they are ready for war. And other Japan, by the way, all those years where Japan wasn't building up weapons, Japan now wants to build weapons again has said you know, they wanted to build their military. They have a strong military, but they want to make it much stronger. Poland just recently said they want to have a strong... So around the world, nations are actually turning from making sewing machines... I don't know where that came from, because I haven't seen a sewing machine from... To, to spears. Maybe it's the Christmas holidays. I think about people embroidering or something. I don't know what it is. But, <laughs> so, um, but you see what's... Even weak countries say we need to build up our military. So be on the lookout for this. When you start to see all of a sudden countries around the world saying it's time to get armed to the teeth because God is going to pull them of all places to Israel. We'll get to that next week. So, But he's going to bring all the nations to the very nation that they have plotted against and fought against economically, financially, politically, militarily, all these nations down through time and present that have come against Israel in every way, shape, or form. God's going to bring them to the very nation they hate 
And that's where God's going to repay them for their hatred and their mistreatment of his people and his land and his temple and his covenant. Does not matter if people agree with it or not. God's not asking, do you agree with what I'm about to do? He's not saying, are you okay with this? He's saying, this is going to happen. Because God, why? Because God is holy. He's righteous. He's right. We're wrong. Whatever he proclaims will happen. Amen? Amen. The nations won't even recognize that it's God himself pulling them and having them prepare for battle. They think it's them coming up with the idea to prepare for battle. God said, no, I'm having you prepare for battle because I'm going to bring you there. We'll get into that next week. A battle that they won't win, but ultimately God is preparing them to, t to come into account for their past and present sins of animosity and cruelty and murder and slavery and barbaric, whatever, all of down through the ages, all of it's going to come there. If we know Christ... We love and pray for Israel right now. Sam really kind of hits that point hard in his newsletter. Uh, but the good news is, in the very same city and land that Jesus died, that's where he's going to come back and reign. And I'll close with Hebrews 12, uh, 22 and 23, that um, if you know the Lord, that you have come to Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's Mount Zion on the earth, there's the heavenly Jerusalem above, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. I hope you're registered in heaven. I know I am. To God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus, the meteor of the new covenant. The old covenant, the new covenant will all come together at the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your sovereign plan. Some of it we understand, some of it we don't. But Lord, we understand more than enough to know that we are sinners that need a Savior. We pray the same for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people there and around the world. We pray the same for the Gentiles, the nations, Lord. Uh, you've come that people would escape the judgment to come. Nobody has to be in a state of rebellion, but they can be, a state of, be in a state of redemption and forgiveness. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, we grow in your grace and we'd be lights and witnesses in such a time that we live in today and we'd be looking for and hastening your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the evening. See you Sunday, Lord willing.